Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. The Bowery Boys, Episode 179, The Fight for Bryant Park. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys are brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of audiobook entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. For a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial, go to audibletrial.com slash Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And we're here today to talk about Bryant Park, one of the most popular destinations in Midtown Manhattan. Now, this is a second part of a two-part series on this particular space of land in Midtown Manhattan. In our last episode, we left the listener standing right here in this space called Reservoir Square at the time, looking with astonishment upon the smoky remains of the Crystal Palace. So having set the stage in a most dramatic fashion, as as only we can do, we're now going to take a look at the history of this extraordinary plot of land going forward as it transforms from a place called Reservoir Square to the park we know today as Bryant Park. It hasn't always been such a chic place, such a fashionable place to have lunch in Midtown Manhattan. In fact, for much of its history, it's kind of been a dump. Here's a quote from the New York Times on June 26, 1976. They said the park, quote, has gradually changed from a tranquil island to a cesspool of crime and vice. Most businesses in the neighborhood have advised their employees to stay out of the park. At midday, hundreds of office workers still enjoy lunch on the broad green, but other times it is almost exclusively the preserve of a very different group. This story actually has everything in it. It has poetry, drugs, film, fashion, and one of the weirdest reenactments in all of New York City history. So join us as we head to Midtown to watch Bryant Park fight back. So, Tom, why don't we briefly review what we discussed in our last episode, both to situate the listener and to recount some of the events that will play into the story that we're about to tell? 
Right. So we're talking today about Bryant Park, which is a 9.6-acre public park in Midtown. It's located between 40th and 42nd Street and between 6th Avenue and halfway east to 5th Avenue. So it isn't really, obviously, the whole block between 5th and 6th because the New York Public Library today stands on the eastern half of that block. In our last episode, we talked about the different things that took place on this plot of land Well, it certainly didn't start out as a park in the early 19th century. No. Well, in the early 19th century, it was a burial ground for people who didn't have the money to be buried elsewhere. It was a potter's field. But even before that, did you know that this land even made an appearance uh, during the Revolutionary War? General Washington rode his horse across this, this very land during the retreat that followed the Battle of Long Island in 1776. Because the reservoir hill, the reservoir was built upon a hill, and so he raced up to the top of that hill to watch the British forces. Well, oddly enough, that's not even George Washington's last appearance on this plot of land, as we will get to a little bit later. But we're getting ahead yes. of ourselves, yes. So taking us back to the last episode, it had become a potter's field in the early 19th century. But when they built the Croton Reservoir, which was this 40-mile pipeline that brought water into New York City as New York was going through this rapid expansion in the 1840s, they needed a reservoir, a distribution reservoir, because the water was coming down from upstate 40 miles into a holding reservoir that was in Central Park. And then from there, it was being piped down to a reservoir that was built on the site of today's New York Public Library. So that, the Croton Reservoir, was built between 1839 and 1842, uh, and it sat there for most of the 19th century. Essentially a man-made lake contained within an Egyptian-style structure. But the land next to it was naturally called Reservoir Square when it was first landscaped. Right, in the in the 1840s. And it was here that our last episode primarily takes place, the Crystal Palace, which was this amazing glass and cast iron structure that was built in 1853 for the exhibition of the Industry of All Nations, which was an incredible world's fair, spectacular like nothing else that the U.S. had ever seen. And we won't give another tour, but go to the last episode for a that leisurely stroll through its hallowed hallways. But if you want to skip that episode, I'll just tell you that in the end, it burns to the ground. Right. In 1858, October 5th, miraculously, nobody died in the fire. But one thing to just remember as you listen to this whole show is that on this very plot of land that we're about to speak about, there was A, a gigantic Egyptian style (laughs) building on one side, on the other side, an elaborate dreamlike glass and steel building. Okay, so neither of those are there today. Interestingly, at the same time that the Crystal Palace was underway, there was a big fight over whether or not to even have a central park. So between the years of 1850 and 1856, the city was roiled in this debate about whether or not we needed to have a park and where it should be located. One of the chief proponents of building a central park was the dashing young editor of the New York Evening Post, William Colin Bryant, who Greg will be giving us a full yes. full retelling of later. With flourish. But did you know, Greg, in the 1850s that they were talking about possibly locating the park? The first, the first place they wanted to put it was way over on the east side in a place called Jones's Wood. Yeah, Jones's Wood is a very magical place in my mind because it was a place that had old family mausoleums in it. It's also a place where people would go 
picnicking on the weekend, but it was so far out of town, at least relatively right. speaking, back in the early 19th century. Today's Upper East Side, and it touched the East River as well. Others wanted something much bigger and in the center of the island, roughly where today's Central Park is, while there was another plan advocated by the Journal of Commerce, which was a little bit more conservative, that advocated building no park at all. Because, you know, why should the city taxpayer pay for a park if you wanted to get out of town and get some of this air that's good for your lungs? Go go do it yourself. Sure, who needs them? The, the lungs, the air? Yeah. <laughs> When you can have just row upon row of buildings for miles and miles. <laughs> Finally, in 1855, Fernando Wood, the mayor, the corrupt mayor at the time, actually pushed through the present location of Central Park. Now, in October of 1858, when the Crystal Palace burned down, the city wasn't quite sure what to do with this land and Reservoir Park anymore. And really, nobody was thinking very much about parks in general a few years later during the Civil War, when this land would be really used as a training ground for Union soldiers. Uh, there wasn't really any big landscaping efforts underway at the time. And tragically, in July of 1863, it would also be the site of draft riots, where protesters would burn the Black Orphanage, which was located right there at the corner of 5th and 43rd Street. Right, it was virtually across the street from this, from this place. The city would organize a parks department in 1871, which would then take this land mm -hmm. here at Reservoir Square and lay it out for the first time, giving it a very naturalistic, a central circular lawn and winding paths around it with benches and some statues. So we're in the 1880s and we're finally getting to answer the very pivotal question of of how the park got its name. Now, you've already given us a preview of the gentleman uh, who would be bestowed the honor of the park's name, William Cullen Bryant. You know, actually, if you think about it, there's actually very few parks that are named in honor of somebody who's not a president or not an old Dutch family, if you think about it. Named at, right, we have Washington Square. And then Madison Square, and, you know, and then it's like, then you have Van Cortland, and so there, there are actually few parks that are, like, named for individuals, So which makes this a, a much more prestigious honor. Mm. So Bryant just to give a very quick biography here, was born in 1794. So, and his parents traced themselves all the way back to the Mayflower, which was, you know, that meant quite a lot in the 19th century to have that kind of lineage. But it was easier back then. They were, they were closer to it. They were closer to it and fewer people. Now, we had mentioned him in our show many years ago on the New York Post, on the history of the New York Post, which was founded by Alexander Hamilton. One thing we kind of skipped over, and I want to stress right now, because it's part of his legacy, is he's also one of the great American poets of the early 19th century. And in fact, even after all the things he did in his life, people would look back fondly at his early years as a poet. Because when you look up the history today of Bryan Park, they always refer to Bryan as a poet. He's the poet, and it, right. I feel like they don't give him enough credit for being the editor of the Evening Post. Because it's sort of contentious and a little politically fraught, which I'll get to. But in terms of a poet, he is an unblemished icon. In fact, shall I read you just a short bit from a William Cullen Bryant poem called do. To a Waterfowl? Whither, midst falling dew, while glow the heavens with the last step of day, far through their rosy depths, dost thou pursue thy solitary way? Vainly the fowler's eye might mark thy distant flight to do thee wrong, as darkly seems against the crimson sky thy figure 
floats along. Beautiful. So it's like that. So he has very grandiose romantic poems about nature, essentially. So he was obviously a big proponent of parks. You can see the connection, actually. And I think it was part of that that made him so popular when he arrived in New York and actually received some patronage from an old New York family named the Sedgwicks. Which Didn't inst- we just talk about the Sedgwick? Yes. Theodore Sedgwick, who we mentioned overseeing the Crystal Palace, is a member of the same family. I think that's very coincidental to mm. the name of the park today, but a very interesting connection. It's also, you know, it's a small world. They helped install him in these various literary positions, and eventually, in the 1820s, Brian started working for the New York Evening Post, which was a newspaper that was originally aligned with Federalist causes, but then under his oversight, when he became the owner of the New York Evening Post, it was a proponent of Republican causes, meaning Republican Party causes, which was a very new concept in the mid-19th century. In New York City, he amassed great wealth and political power and was one of the most influential voices in American journalism in the mid-19th century. He, through his newspaper, had this original competition for a city park, which eventually gave us the design for Central Park as designed by Olmsted and Vox. Some consider him to even be the godfather of Central Park because it, it kind of wouldn't have even come to fruition in the way that we know it today without his influence. And his influence just being incessant articles and editorials in the in the post about how the city mm-hmm. needed it because remembering that the city at the time is going through this rapid expansion new immigrants arriving irish and german the city creeping uptown but also industrialization is happening and at the same time these lots these lots that were being subdivided and sold off used to be farms and there the city itself used to have more gardens and, and there were just more empty spaces these were all being constructed upon And citizens were starting to feel like they couldn't get fresh air and Mm -hmm. they couldn't breathe. And combine that with the romantic notions of people like this poet editor who's writing these things about how there was this idea that we needed the force of nature in our lives in order to combat this new industrialized age. But just to be clear, he's pushing for Central Park because that's kind of confusing. Yeah, we're talking know. Central Park. He didn't. We, I don't really actually even know his views on Reservoir Square here. We don't. He probably <laughs> went to the Crystal Palace. Sure, right. Bryant also, among the many other things that he founded, founded a civic club called the Century Association or the Century Club, a group that's still around today. Near the end of his life here, the club commissioned the renowned sculptor Lount Thompson to make a beautiful bronze bust of Mr. Bryant to honor his 70th birthday. And they wanted to place this in Central Park because, of course, he was such an influential man to Central Park. You know, very powerful. But unfortunately, Mm. he was also very Mm anti-Tammany. And they controlled everything, Tammany Hall. Yeah, and they prevented the statue from even being placed in Central Park. So the so-called godfather of Central Park was not even honored within it. So for a while, this newly built bust of Mm -hmm. Mr. Bryant sat in the newly formed Metropolitan Museum and basically left it there. And then the Century Club eventually took it back at some point. 
On May 31st, 1878, Mr. Bryant was actually in Central Park at the unveiling of another bus, which is still there today, a bust of Giuseppe Massini, which is near Sheep's Meadow. So during the unveiling, he collapsed and they had to rush him back to his home, which was down on the West 16th Street. And it was there just two weeks later that he died. So he died in 1878. Finally, several years later, in March of 1884, by this point, of course, the city was marching up the island and a great wealthy population was lining Fifth Avenue. So they decided to rename Reservoir Park here after Mr. Bryant. From the New York Times that month, quote, It is proposed that Reservoir Square be decorated with the bronze statue of Bryant by Launt Thompson and that the name of this little park be changed to Bryant Park. How the present title even came to be attached to the square is puzzling some of the city authorities as if it were not an obvious fact that the public will name any locality out of its own sense of the fitness of things. Reservoir Square has a meaning, but it is a poverty-stricken title to attach to any locality, however small and mean it might be. <laughs> so, see, by this point, you couldn't have just, like, a plot of land named for, a, like, a, a utility. Everything had to have right. finery behind it. Right, that name Reservoir Square is just so literal. <laughs> yeah. Well, they renamed it just in time because the reservoir was not to be there much longer itself. By this time, they had upgraded the entire water system in New York, and this distribution center was no longer necessary. Very inadequate, yeah. Trying to figure out what to do with this giant Egyptian-shaped tomb that was on the corner of 5th and 42nd. It doesn't it doesn't seem to be a very flexible item in which you no. can turn it into like a concert hall or something. No pop-up shop happening there. <laughs> Although they they were literally floating a plan in 1891 to open a botanical garden over the reservoir, which seems <laughs> So improbable to me how this would even work. Remember that they did have walkways around Mm -hmm. the top of it um, and one that cut north and south just in in the middle of it. So people would go up and take in the wonderful view of Midtown from five stories up. They they planned to somehow build, or at least somebody wanted to develop a botanical garden up there. They wanted to build a floor with like the Uh, trees and things on it? Everything would be over the water. Here's a quote from the Times in March of 1891 where they said that the Academy of Medicine quote, feared that it would pollute the waters therein and would result in sickness and death. People strongly pushed against this idea. I can't even believe this idea came to a certain level that all of these newspapers were reacting to it because the New York Sun Mm -hmm. called it, quote, a piece of claptrap devised for sensational purposes only, and it is necessary to expose the humbug. The humbug of the the botanical garden plant. Of the floating... Air garden. I mean, it's like the. It really is one of the most spectacularly ridiculous ideas I've ever thought of. Was Barnum involved? Do you think? Did he have his finger in this reservoir? <laughs> I think he was done with Reservoir Square, so no, right. he probably was not. Well, a few years later, in the late 1890s, they would finally tear down this reservoir, and this time it was intended to make room for the new library that. Library, Obviously, the New York Public Library that we still have and love today was designed by renowned architects John Carrera and Thomas Hastings. It wouldn't open until 1911. So we have a long time here between 1897 or so and 1911 where the reservoir is being demolished. And where it was just kind of, there, there were a lot of delays. We have an entire podcast about this as well. Mm-hmm. 
yesterday at the New York Historical Society, I was flipping through the old historical insurance atlases. Oh, sure. They're, so they're, which they're, I want to do. They're like gigantic maps that right. were done by the city for insurance purposes. And they're like on that like reddish, pinkish paper. Well, and yeah. They're giant maps. That they're color-coded according mm-hmm. to the kind of structures. So if something is made of brick, it's color-coded pinkish. Maybe mm-hmm. that's what you're thinking yeah. of. But you can see Manhattan block by block and then see each of the lots and the structures that are constructed upon the lots, you can tell what kind of uh, material they're constructed in. Anyway, looking those over from the period of the Crystal Palace days, the 1850s, you see that there's almost no construction at all around the Crystal Palace. Mm -hmm. We're talking about like blank lots, right? Only 50 years later, the blocks are pretty much filled with buildings. And just west of Bryant Park at that point, around 1900, is the Theater District. And we talked about this in the Herald Square and History of the Broadway Musical podcast. Well, this area is sandwiched between the Theater District, soon to become the Times Square, area and that row of elegant homes that were up and down Mm. Fifth Avenue that would soon be replaced with department stores and offices. The library would open in 1911, and it would add to the park by constructing a terrace into the park space, largely the same stone terrace that's there today. And they would include a bronze statue of Bryant sitting in a chair by Herbert Adams. But this is not that bust I was talking about earlier, that one that sort of got passed around from the Met to the Century Club and whatever. A bust is, about? Yeah, this was no bust. In fact, this is a fully realized figure of Mr. Yes. Bryant nestled inside this marble archway. Carrere and Hastings also designed two stone relief buildings, if you will, a men's and a women's restroom, the men's to the north of the park, and a women's facility just to the south of it. Today, just to flush forward, the men's relief station is actually the restroom that is still there today. It serves for men and women, but that was introduced at the same time in 1911. And all of this is incredibly spectacular and has turned one half of this area into one of the most impressive structures in New York City. And all Beaux-Arts and beautiful, but if you cast your eyes west and look over Bryant Park, you see a park that is... Eh, it's it's there. It's not at all benefiting, by the way, from the Sixth Avenue elevated train no, that I... is rambling and rattling up and down Sixth Avenue and had opened in 1878 and would remain in operation until the end of the 1930s. That, of course, made it easier for people to get to Midtown and even up to Central Park. But it also cast a shadow down on Bryant Park, and it made a lot of noise and sent soot down on top of people's heads. And it's funny to think of that west side of the park today, which is so lively and vibrant, having this like dour shadow cast upon it. Well, it would be more than shadows that would be making Bryant Park inhospitable to visitors. We'll get to that story and to how the city and the park fought back after this break. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC. 
hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Building a stronger financial foundation? Good plan. Northwestern Mutual's Guide to Good Financial Planning can help you balance spending and saving, set goals, and start creating the life you want to be living. You'll learn how the tools in your financial plan reinforce each other to help you minimize taxes and offset potential risks. Grow your confidence by strengthening your finances today at northwesternmutual.com slash goodplan. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Now, regular listeners of the show might have noticed something strange, that the episode that you're listening to right now was released just two weeks after our last show, which was The Crystal Palace. And that's because this episode of The Bowery Boys is brought to you by you. That's right. Uh, It's because of the contributions of our listeners that we are actually experimenting with doubling our output going forward, releasing a brand new Bowery Boys episode every two weeks. Now, for the past few years, listeners have clicked the donate button on our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, and made donations to the show, even if the process was super low tech. And by that, I mean, it was really, we literally had a PayPal account stating that you were sending money to our (laughs) earthlink.net email account. It was actually us. That was legit. Okay, but now we've made a big upgrade. You can now click donate at the website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, or you can go directly to Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys. That's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys, and support the show for as little as $1 a month. The best part about that is that we have a lot of special fun extras for those who join in their support. We're going to have unreleased clips from the show, special members-only emails, and cocktail invites. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Twist our arm. (laughs) We're coming up with a ton of exciting new little extras that we can provide. So head to patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. It's like patron, but there's an E in the middle of it, to see all the extras and to see a video of us recording the show. All of this money will help us as we upgrade the show in all these different ways from new equipment to research to just being able to create the time to do extra things and in our push to produce twice as many episodes, of course. We love telling the stories of New York, these colorful tales that have shaped New York history. And with your help, we'll be telling many, many more of them into the future. So head over to patreon.com slash Bowery Boys to check it out. And we both thank you so much for your support. 
So back to the park here. Fortunes have now changed for little old Bryant Park here. The park did get gussied up here in the 1910s. You previously mentioned the statue of William Cullen Bryant, right. which was here in October of 1911. Sitting in his marble niche. In his marble niche, he would be joined... I've just- got marble niches of my own. <laughs> I've got an itch in my marble niche. niche. <laughs> I've got an ointment for that niche. Mr. Bryant would be joined here a year later with a lavish water fountain that would be dedicated to Josephine Shaw Lowell, who had had died a few years before, but was a progressive reformer and founded many charitable institutions in New York. And a famous suffragette. One of the her great legacies is the National Consumers League, which she formed with Jane Addams, which called attention to work conditions and in particular, the equal wages of women. So both of these things, the fountain and uh, Mr. Bryant, are still in the park today. Yes, but interestingly, the fountain was nearby Bryant. It was nearest the library. It would it obviously wouldn't be on the other side, on the west side, because you still had that elevated railroad. I mean, oh, right. what a what a slap in the face. There's a fountain dedicated to you, but it's filled with soot. Oh. <laughs> Luckily, in the 1930s, it was moved to its western location where it remains today. In the late 1910s, or 1918, 1919, there were these demonstration gardens. So this was during World War One. these model farms, and it was just a demonstration for people to grow their own food, grow uh-huh. their own vegetables. And so there's all these lovely little photographs of wooden trellises and people strolling through it as they're going to plot little vegetable gardens here, essentially. It's people who lived around the area who tended to these gardens. So it's a little bit kind of like the the gardens of the East Village or some places in Brooklyn where it's a neighborhood garden. It's just that in this case, the neighborhood... Was Midtown. 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 And in terms of the design of the park at this time, it's not the Bryant Park that we know today with the long yard. This is still this sort of circular path. It has a circular path. Most notably, not a whole lot of trees, Mm -hmm. actually. There's some benches around a circular path and not symmetrical or seeming in any way. It was naturalistic. (laughs) Naturalistic. Until the 1920s, when much of that was undone because of the construction of the subway. You know, there's a mass of subway tunnels being constructed at this time all around Midtown. And they need a place to put equipment, a lot of storage space. And this is seems like the most natural place because it is an open patch of land. So unfortunately, during the 1920s, it was kind of an unpleasant place to visit. The New Yorker in 1926 called it, quote, one of the most badgered and turned up lots in the world. To contrast with this, we are in Midtown in the 1920s. Everything is being built here. 42nd Street itself is being transformed with the great skyscrapers of the age. And then here we have this little area. It's kind of a mess. And also, I should add, it's around this time that the quote, as newspapers said, army of the unemployed begin flocking here and sleeping here. And this would be a crisis for the park for several decades as well. Even before the crash. Even before the crash, but even made worse by the crash of the stock market and the Great Depression. It seemed everybody was complaining about the park. Did you see the? there was a quote in 1928 in the Times saying, even before it was ruined by the subway excavation, it was in dilapidated condition. Poorly planned, it had been inadequately maintained, misused by the public, it was unsightly. 
No other city in the world would have tolerated such a park in one of the most important districts. So then what's about to happen next seems extraordinary in its absurdity. For 1932, that happened to be the 200th anniversary of the birth of George Washington. And there were many events planned throughout the United States. And it was a really big deal, even though there's a lot of stuff going on in the United States in 1932. We're talking the depths of the Depression. Yeah. But the city thought, well, we want to get involved. So what we're going to do is come up with a reconstruction. And let's use Bryant Park just as an excuse to sort of revitalize it. Originally, though, they wanted to do a replica of Mount Vernon, which was Washington's original Virginia home. But the park was not in the right shape to look like a beautiful farm. It was too dilapidated for something so elaborate. So instead, they decided to go for something a little closer to home. So when George Washington was president, and you know New York was briefly the home for federal government, remember? Right, for the first couple of years. And the focus of government was at Federal Hall on Wall Street. But the original Federal Hall was torn down in 1812, and the building that sits there today is the Federal Hall National Memorial. So they're kicking around looking for something to reconstruct, as you just explained. So, yeah. So they decide, let's reconstruct Federal Hall as it used to look. Well, and to build it here made sense because, as we know, Washington had ridden his horse across <laughs> yeah, he here. Was, he once walked by it. <laughs> rode past, past it. Past it. Rode through it. So, incredibly, they construct a fake federal hall. It opened on April 30th of 1932. I just, I'm just i just laughing, even trying to describe it. They opened with a reenactment of Washington's inaugural ceremony. And actually, the pictures look kind of amazing with hundreds of people and festive costumes here in the middle of midtown Manhattan. And it was backed up right against the library. So the front of Federal Hall faced into Bryant Park, but then the back of it was against the back of the library. Right. Was it a hit with the public? Huh. Well, throughout the summer, of course, you know, then all the Washington stuff was was done. And what we do you were do with it? Stuck with Federal well, Hall. Well, the plans were, as the New York Times stated that summer, the building would be used for civic and patriotic meetings and for the exhibition of Washingtonia. Unquote. So basically, who was Washingtonia? <laughs> Not his daughter. No, you walked in and it just had like uh, artifacts and likenesses, pieces of artwork about Washington. It was a gigantic room. It wasn't an elaborate building inside. It was just one room. Kind of expensive, like I think 25 cents to get into. And it was in Bryant Park. So it hmm. wasn't a big hit. In fact, it was so unsuccessful that they ended boarding it up and it ended up just being a place where they held supplies for the subway and kind of an eyesore and a magnet for undesirables. Eventually, uh-huh. the whole thing was torn down, but the whole endeavor was a financial disaster. I mean, we talk about a lot of financial disasters, but this this really takes the cake. And the park was totally trashed. This had not done any improvement. In fact, it made everything worse. And now here we are really in the Depression. So, so Bryan Park still looks like the old Bryan Park <laughs> yeah. with this like dilapidated federal hall. 
and and the city itself is in the middle of a depression. Yeah. Where to turn? Well, something remarkable happens in New York City in 1934, which is, of course, the election of Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia. And, of course... Who does he bring in for his young Parks Commissioner? I think somebody we haven't (laughs) talked about in a while. I know, I've missed saying his name, Robert Moses. So in 1934, finally there was initiated the plans for a grand redesign. The elevated railroad would, during this decade, be torn down thanks to the efforts of another project right up the street, Rockefeller Center, and the power of the Rockefellers. And this would finally open up the potential for the park. According to the New York Times, quote, hope was expressed that the new city government, i.e. LaGuardia, would act promptly to reclaim Bryant Park from the despoilation left by the George Washington Bicentennial Commission. (laughs) (laughs) Despoilation. So if it's New York and there's something new to be built, a new park to be built, it sounds like this is a great time to have another reality show. (laughs) Let's bring in a competition. So they have, yes, in fact, they do have a design competition for the park. The winner was Lesbian. Simpson, but his design does set the basic layout for the park that we have today, pretty much. Right. The same French Beaux-Arts design, quite a bit like the Tuileries Mm -hmm. um, or the Jardin de Luxembourg in Paris. So when the park opened in September 14th of 1934, what was kind of amazing, and the first thing that people noticed were trees. There were hedges, there were little stone fences. In a park? (laughs) Hard to believe, but I mean, those innovations were brought to the park. Another unusual component to the park, which I've always found really interesting about it, is that it's actually four feet above the street. It's not at street level. So you don't just like stroll into the park directly. You have to walk upstairs. It's cut off from regular pedestrian traffic and always set off from that sidewalk. And this is very important. We'll play into the problems that the park would have pretty soon after. I I think they thought it was a great idea. You would be literally elevated. It would create even more of an otherworldly feel inside of the park because you would be on a different level from the street, which would be sunken from your perspective in the middle of the park. But this would not be a good feature going forward into some of the darker years in New York history. Or more shaded, actually. All of those those trees that he brought in, the 240 London plane trees, would cast really big shadows and become overgrown as the time went on. But in choosing this design, which was intending to create this sort of urban oasis, They had actually walled it off, making it a little bit more difficult to get into or seeming to get out of, making it eventually more of a haven for illicit activities. Shady behavior. There's a lot of shade. (laughs) Do you mind going into a little more detail for that particular shady behavior here in the park? Pretty much right off the bat, uh, Mayor LaGuardia would start allowing the police to issue tickets for loitering in the park. It got bad so many sort of disreputable types hanging around in the shade that he ordered a curfew at 10 p.m. in 1944 just to kind of like keep people from sleeping inside and also just creating this atmosphere. But things got a lot shadier as we head into the 1960s with the rise of drug culture 
in New York City. Parks all over the city were dealing with dealers and with buyers and customers, addicts, the whole thing. Yeah, it was just reflecting what was kind of happening and what was deteriorating in the city already. And that was really playing out very starkly here in the park. Well, Bryant Park had everything, right? It had a super central location that was raised and still offered privacy for people to conduct their business or buy whatever they needed. And it was so easy to get to for customers. I mean, they had all kinds of subway options, you know, or they could just go over their lunch break. I mean, talk about easy access. (laughs) Well, the park itself, though, was such an embarrassment. It was being called a disaster area. The parks department was trying to figure out how to combat this drug problem in the park throughout the 1960s. They came up with this idea of trying anything to get people to come into the park, to make it a destination for just, you know, non-drug dealing or consuming New Yorkers. We'll get some proper entertainments into the park and a draw that was above board. They tried producing fashion shows and poetry readings and such to, to lure office workers in. So many of the things that are working today were actually introduced back then in an effort to get everyday New Yorkers back into the park. But the reputation was just not good enough for those things to really succeed. Well, it was getting worse as well into the 1970s so bad that there were proposals even to close the park unless the public would help out and keeping it clean. From an article in the Times in 1976, quote, William Stolberg, the chairman of the community board, suggested that perhaps the only solution was to close the park. But the police and parks commissioner have said that the move would be surrendering to criminal elements. Quote, we've got to take the park back, declared assistant chief Carl Ravens. So they were committed to taking the park back. Yet crime was continuing. In 1976, the first murder occurred in the park. The next year, second murder. So People didn't really know what to do with this and were even embarrassed by it. Like, how in the world was this super central park becoming ungovernable and unpoliceable? They even thought about taking away the entries to the park and making the park a private park to the library itself. So you could only access it through the library, had to show a library card to get into the park. Well, but people were still going there. I mean, Midtown is thriving. You've got to eat somewhere if you if you work on 42nd street i mean it still is like a temptation just to go there to have lunch because it's like at least it's outside no you bring up a good point i happen to have lunch stats in front of me here (laughs) and people were people were eating their lunch there reuben sandwiches forty thousand in 1977 no i guess they're different no i don't know what kinds of lunches people were eating but i can tell you that the a typical lunch attendance In 1974, attendance for lunch (laughs) was 1,300 people, which is not that many. When you think about how many people eat lunch in Bryan Park, go sometime and try to count how many people are having lunch over the course of a day. Six years later, in 1980, there were only 700 people a day having lunch. The worst part about the statistics, about the, the sharp dive in park usage, was that women in particular felt very uncomfortable in the park. During these years, 78% I saw of the people who actually attended the park were men. So only like 22% of the people entering the park 
we're women. We're not talking about like hanging out for hours in the park. We're talking about walking through the park. I mean, this is something that is so not even an issue today well, no, to think about walking through that park. That's fundamentally unsafe. If people are changing their behaviors and right. avoiding this park, that is an unpleasant and unsafe place to be. It was intimidating. Mm-hmm. Well, in 1979, the library kicked off a huge renovation project, and this was funded largely by the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Part of that project was not just an overhaul and renovation of the library itself, but also of that which was just behind the library, Bryant Park. One of the people that the, the group brought in was the urban theory expert, William White, who studied the, the situation to try to understand what exactly was wrong with Bryant Park. Now, White is an interesting character. He had been an editor of Fortune magazine where he published all kinds of urban studies um, articles. He had tried to figure out exactly how cities work. He had written a book in 1958 called The Exploding Metropolis in which in which he enticed the essayist Jane Jacobs to publish an essay and she would later expand that essay in 1961 into her book The Death and Life of Great American Cities. And in 1980 White would publish a book, a very important book on the topic called The Social Life of Small Urban Spaces. So he was brought on board to study the question why were people staying away from this small, otherwise lovely, and super central and convenient park. He made a list of suggestions. They're pretty straightforward and very simple. There wasn't a grand overhaul of the whole park. He basically said, look, clean the place up, lighten it up. He said, take down the fence, pull out the shrubs, uh, make the entries wider, add access to the library terrace, because at that point, that terrace where Brian sits, that was walled off. So open up the whole space and renovate, interestingly, renovate the bathroom spaces, because those were those had been obviously wow. <laughs> fallen into disuse. A little gnarly. So this entire effort was undertaken by the Bryant Park Restoration Corporation, the BPRC, which was formed in 1980 and still runs the park today. They are a private-slash-public partnership, and they raise money through a bunch of different ways. For example, this is kind of legally interesting— the Parks Department leases the park to the BPRC for $1 a year and gave a lot of money for the restoration, $6 million, but the committee needed to go out and find another $3.2 million on its own, so they had to drum up their own money. Well, and just to add that Central Park, which was has made its appearance to this show already, is also going through a similar renovation from a private conservancy. Right, so this was the new hybrid Damn, approach. Right. Mm-hmm. They would also raise money through an assessment on the properties surrounding the park because they would say, look, this is actually going to raise your property value instead of diminish it by being this sort of like drug den. And they were right about that. And then they'd also raise money by selling things like food and whatever and renting out space for special events and special occurrences that would take place in Bryant Park. Just as they're about to shut the place down and move forward with this plan, in 1985, the biggest ball drops here. The library announces that they've run out of space in the stacks of their main building. They've literally run out of space to put books and even (laughs) microfiche. They didn't have room for microfiche. Oh, the era, the pre-digital age here. So what to do? And what did that mean for Bryant Park? Well, luckily... One of the landscape architects hired to redesign the park came up with a brilliant idea. He thought, well, wait, we have this giant expanse of a lawn. Why not 
cut open the lawn and build a two-story stack extension right there and then cover it up with the lawn again. So bury the stacks underneath Brian Park's lawn and have a tunnel that goes back and forth to the library. And so to this day, part of Brian Park underneath it is actually stacks of thousands of books. Thousands? No, no. It's it's large <laughs> enough to hold 3.2 million oh. <laughs> volumes. And it's pretty much the entire lawn. When, when it was constructed in 1989, they built the stacks and then they added insulation on top of it and then six feet of topsoil on top of that because they thought that perhaps future generations would want to plant trees there. You know, who oh, knows? Sure. Because the design's going to change. They want to have some flexibility. Mm-hmm. In 88, they threw up a fence. Bryant Park construction had begun. And the new park would reopen in April of 1992 with many of White's suggestions in place, except for the removal of the iron fence. They kept that they there. They still have the fence, right? It's still there, yes. But I would say, I mean, in all the things that we've talked about on this show of renovations and redesigns and reopenings and refurbishes, mm-hmm. this is one of the most successful redesigns, especially in Midtown. because Rehabilitations. Have, yeah, it went from... This very undesirable place. Now, by 1992, and people quickly saw that this was a whole fresh new park, it would be one of the most radically transformed spaces in Manhattan. It was so clean, so chic even, even cool, that Mm -hmm. who comes a calling to the park but the fashionistas. So the following year, in 1993, New York Fashion Week was created here. Now, there's always been fashion events since the 1940s. They called it Press Week, and it was when designers would debut their latest lines and hobnob and party with the fashion elite. It was created during World War II because America had to you know, focus on its own domestic industry. But then by the 1980s, you would even have some fashion shows down in dangerous little Soho down in the 1980s. Mm. But these places wouldn't always be safe, and they wouldn't be very well regulated for large gatherings of people the final straw happened in 1991 tom when during a michael kors show in soho part of the ceiling collapsed onto a runway and uh it was kind of a disaster everyone was okay people think that maybe it was part of the show (laughs) well obviously they can't have that happening again so they consolidate it and make it a little more of a concerted effort moving it here to bryant park in 1993 it was originally called seventh on sixth because it was 7th Avenue, the fashion district, over here on 6th Avenue on the west side. You know, most of this would occur in those long line of white tents. Do you remember that? I remember those. When you worked in Midtown. So all these runway shows would be inside the tents, World-famous fashion designers packed in with journalists, supermodels everywhere. Sarah Jessica Parker. So, everywhere, walking around in her monologue. Cosmos. And it was helped paying the bills of Brian Park. On, on the side, exactly. But, you know, it got bigger and bigger, and it needed more room to grow. So in 2010, it moved to Lincoln Center, where it is home today still. So fashion, super glamorous here at Brian Park. That upgrades the scene a little bit. What else comes along but Hollywood in 1993 with the HBO Bryant Park Film Festival, which today still operates today. It's outdoor movies on that lawn. Everyone crams on the lawn during the spring and summer months. 
there's been outdoor movies for over a hundred years in New York, you know, like back in the days when it was silent film, you didn't really, you know, you didn't need sound. So you could just throw up a screen in some vacant lot somewhere. But because of the conditions of the city in the 1970s and 80s, no one would have really felt safe or would want to be outside <laughs> watching a movie in New York, right? So there's something You'd really... you have to be a psycho. <laughs> but there's something really like symbolic about this in 1993 a very radical idea mm. of let's just gather people together in a park at night right and they're all going to be safe and they're all going to have a great time so and uh, that was sponsored by hbo which has its headquarters just a half a block away between 42nd and 43rd on 6th now tom do you happen to know what the very first movie ever shown for the Bryant Park Film Festival in 1993. The very Was it a classic? Movie. Oh, yeah, it's a classic. It's a very old film. It's not a film that's recognized as a great New York film, but it features stars that are from the New York vaudeville stage. Oh, was it Yankee Doodle Dandy? <laughs> no, it was not George Cohen. It was the Marx Brothers. And the movie was A Night at the Opera. Oh, Could you imagine? Yeah. I know I would love th- for them to bring that back as a as a revival to the very first days here. Now, with the Well, new- I think that we were going to movies there, weren't we? In 93, 94. I, I remember seeing All About Eve one of those years. Well, it's become such an event, sometimes a kind of insane event, uh, when they open the lawn in the afternoon and people oh. run to like... like It's like competitive sport. Yeah, it's really insane. Now, with the new century comes another interesting feature and very uh, surprising, something you could not have possibly imagined in the early days of Bryant Park, which was Winter Village, a selection of holiday shops uh, that line during the winter months and attracts the tourists. In 2005 came the skating rink that is the seasonal skating rink, The Pond, in Bryant Park. The whole place today is called Bank of America Winter Village. Which rolls off the tongue. <laughs> Which takes us to today, 2015. And it is an incredibly vibrant and active park. I just walked through there yesterday and there's just so many even bizarre activities. You can play ping pong now. You have the, They have a petanque area. Where, yes. I mean, there is that gorgeous little adorable carousel. This particular carousel has been there since 2002. When you visit Bryant Park, stroll around, and there's all these little statues that we haven't really gotten to talk about. Beautiful little things all over the place. Many of them have just been recently placed there, at least in the past 10 or 15 years. But of course, you can't leave without saying hello to Mr. Bryant himself, lording over the bustling park that sits in front of him now. It's so odd that it's so easy to walk right by him without even stopping and taking note of him for a second. <laughs> we encourage you when you're crossing by the library to stop along that library terrace and give him a salute for fighting for parks in this city more than 150 years ago. And so that wraps up our um, two-part show on the Crystal Palace, the origins and rehabilitation of Bryant Park. Please visit our blog, barryboyspodcast.com, where I will have pictures of this whole era of wildly different pictures of Bryan Park from their early years to the not-so-glamorous years to the over-the-top years of fashion and film. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Bowery Boys. And again, if you'd like to join the community of supporters of the Bowery Boys to help us produce twice as many episodes, you can do that at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. 
And now I will say something that we have not said perhaps ever or even in release in a few years. We'll see you for our next show in two weeks. So have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta.